This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future. Here on the Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today we talk to Mother Jones food and agricultural writer Tom Philpot about the implications of chicken powerhouse Purdue buying Nyman Ranch, a meat producer known for its antibiotic free pork. We'll talk more about that later in the program. First, we bring you a conversation I had earlier this week at the University of Maryland. It was part of the annual Maryland Food Access and Nutrition Network Conference. The conversation was called, You Aren't Dangerous Until You Can Speak Powerfully. We spent time discussing the power of stories in advocacy work and community and personal empowerment. Joining me for the conversation were Gerald Stansbury, Maryland State Chapter President of the NAACP, Sarah Buckingham of the Baltimore City Chapter of Results, a national nonprofit grassroots advocacy group, and Damian Housling of the Baltimore Area Faces of Homelessness Speakers Bureau, who was the first to share his thoughts about voice, advocacy, and community empowerment. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so my name is uh, Damien Hausling. I coordinate the Faces of Homelessness Speakers Bureau, actually, correction. I coordinate the Baltimore area Faces of Homelessness Speakers Bureau. Um, uh, the idea of having a Speakers Bureau that, that involves people who uh, have personal experience of homelessness came out of the National Coalition for the Homeless about 15 years ago and when a, uh, an advocate um, started bringing his friends along t- with him when he would uh, give presentations to homelessness, and noticed that those were the stars. People wanted to actually hear from them, and that's kind of what the idea came out, uh, came out of it. And then a few years later, of course, they decided to uh, contract with the um, uh, America Vista program to start bureaus around the country, and. Uh, and so uh, Baltimore got his about five or six years ago. And so, um, so we are a collection of individuals who've all had personal experience of homelessness. Now, some of us are, have escaped, escaped it and are housed down, but uh, of course some of us are in, uh, still homeless. Uh, but we're all basically still living in poverty. And um, we've um, all decided that we wanted to end, end this stuff, end this uh, torture. <laughs> Um, it was not fun when I was homeless. It was absolutely miserable. And I've decided that I would try to do that. And so some of the things that we do, um, you know, you don't, prior to my experience, I had a particular vision, which is much like what most people, uh, I imagine, have of what I thought homelessness looked like. Um, I had a preconceived notion of what I thought, you know, why someone became homeless, and it was always ab- about them, basically. Um, um, personal, uh, personal failures kind of thing. Uh, but learning that, you know, obviously it's mostly um, the, the societal structures that we all decide that we would like to have. Uh, no, um, no or very little support for uh, housing for poor people. We give it all to the rich. Um, and many other things, of course. Um, and so we go to schools, we go to houses of worship, we um, sometimes go to places we're not invited to share our, our stories and, uh, and bring the story out. In fact, actually Sunday, I was at a church and uh, boy was I nervous, uh, about 300 children, <laughs> um, to share our stories and, and basically 
let people know what, what it's really like and, and how we got there. There's always a very powerful, um, there's always a very powerful uh, story in everybody. Um, and as, as, much as, it's, uh, as much as when we're sharing it, a lot of times, even though we all know um, that um, it's market forces and societal forces that, that help to cause that stuff for most, many of us, we still um, always struggle with things. Well, I did this, I did this, I uh, did that uh, thing. But you can always connect it to, to, a, uh, to a, a public policy or a, or, or a societal issue that does that. And um, so we've, um, uh, we've had the uh, pleasure of uh, sharing also with some of the school, uh, some colleges and teaching classes and, and things like that. And maybe we'll hear more from you. Thank you very much. And uh, now we'll hear from Gerald Stansbury. All right, thank you all for having me. My name is Gerald Stansbury. I'm the Maryland State Conference NAACP president, and that consists of 24 branches throughout the state of Maryland. Uh, each branch in the county has a, a, a branch president, and they fall under the umbrella, and we're the parent organization for those uh, uh, counties. Now, part of what the Maryland State Conference do is what we heard a little bit about earlier, is advocate. And that's what we're here today. We want to push out the, the need for us to advocate for homeless. And we also want to make sure that they are empowered. So now how do we empower the people who are homeless? The most essential way, the most human way to do that is through the vote. So therefore, what we're saying is, hey, look, let's, if we really want to eradicate uh, uh, homelessness and poverty, then what we need to do is make sure that we educate the people who are homeless and let them know the best way to do that is being able to uh, advocate through their voting strength. Now, one thing the NAACP does across the country is fight to make sure that all citizens' rights are, are not disenfranchised by different types of laws that you see coming apart, uh, coming into play with the voter ID and those kind of things. So the basic function we have is to try to make sure that nobody's rights to vote is abridged. We want to make it more comfortable, more easy. Everyone should be the government. If you want a voice in the government, the best way to have a voice in the government is to be able to vote. So those uh, homeless people are homeless people living in poverty. The best way to have them at the table to express, as you said, their testimonies and those things is through their vote. Uh, many of the homeless do not even know that in the state of Maryland that if you have a shelter at an address, you can vote. You figure you don't have an address, so you cannot vote. So we need to get that education out there so that they can be, as we said, advocates in Annapolis. And when we speak of advocacy now, as, as um, the young lady said earlier, it is not about you having to always be in Annapolis. We got social media. You can write, um, so every individual, if they're a little shy, they don't want to come down and testify, you can advocate through social media. Facebook is a great way to adv adv advocate. Um, uh, uh, Twitter, uh, you can tweet. Tweet? Is that what it is? Tweet. <laughs> you can tweet. You know, so there are many ways that you can advocate. And see, in the NAACP, we like to educate people as to their voting rights, all right? And that's one thing that we find that a lot of people who are homeless, they realize they think they lose those rights. Once you have the right to vote, you're willing, and once you can cast that vote, and you feel like you can make a decision on small things, then you feel like you can make decisions on bigger things. And that'll stress more that you, okay, now I can stress that how important it is for you to have a job, how important it is for me to have sick leave, those type of things. So you will have a voice in that. And that's why we're here. We, we, we really believe in Hunger Solutions. Um, it's just a shame. I, I really don't like to talk from my heart because I usually get very emotional when I start speaking these things, and I try to use my paper more so I can stay on point. 
but it's, it's really disgusting to see people, homes vacant, people standing on the street, uh, people are not being fed, children going hungry. Come on. This, is not, this doesn't make any sense at all. You know what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is that we need to advocate for them, educate the people who are homeless, take them aside and say, hey, look, let me see what you need in order for you to get to the polls to vote. We fight for those um, uh, situations where we find that the voting place was here yesterday and tomorrow the time the day before it votes, it, it moves to another location. Uh, people come in, they want voter ID laws put in place. Come on, how many homeless people have a voter ID? You know what I'm saying? So those kind of things, we need to make it easier for all citizens to have a right to vote. And that's what the NAACP does. We sit there, we have taken on the role as the night watchman, okay, to monitor what goes on so that we're there when those things happen. And each one of you have to take on that same role. When you read the newspaper, when you hear an article, when you see situations in the street, you need to speak up. It's better for you to speak up than to be silent. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to move forward with some questions and feel free to ask anything you want to ask. But if we were really serious about eradicating poverty, then we need to make sure that we empower the people that are uh, suffering from this suffrage. So thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. So, and I do want to get, we have a, we'll have a roving mic, I understand, so, um, and I want you all to participate in this, because what I'd like to explore for the next time that we have together is, let's start with how creatively we think we get those voices out, and why is it so important to have those voices out? Before we started the conversation today, Sarah, you and I were talking in the lobby about statistics, and, and I was throwing out how we still use this notion of poverty from the 1960s in terms of defining what poverty is. 25% of Baltimore, they say, lives in poverty. And I say ad nauseum to some people that, no, it's closer to half the people in Baltimore if you look at people who are home insecure, how many people have looked for public housing, how many people experience homelessness. Well, over half the people in our city that we're living in now or talking in are poor, live in poverty. We're afraid to talk about poverty. So how do we use the voices of the people themselves to open that up, to bring it home, to humanize it to other communities? And let me, and Sarah, just let me pick on you first. Just to, and I just want to just kind of a dialogue with everybody just about how we get there. Well, what, do we, what do we envision? It's very easy for us to separate ourselves from statistics and to say that that's shocking and that's horrible. Um, and yet I can go about my daily life um, when I hear statistics, when I hear stories of people suffering, um, of the faces of homelessness, of the faces of impoverished children, um, it's, it's harder for me to let that story go. And yet, it's also easy for me to not take action because it's a story or two stories. Um, and then even when I have the two of them, when I have sort of the statistics, and the, and the face together, unless I know what to do, unless I feel empowered and I know the action that I need to take, it becomes overwhelming. And so there's the shutdown too. So I think it's the, it's the three pieces that have to go hand in hand. I think you, we need the personal stories, we need the faces out there, um, which is also another conversation because when people are struggling and impoverished, it's very, it's very difficult to 
to advocate, right? Because you're worried about the day-to-day. You're going through the motions. You're surviving. You're in survival mode. And so that's, that's a whole different story. But I think the, the three of them need to come hand-in-hand. In hand. We have to have the, the shocking statistics to know what's really out there. We have to have the personal stories. Um, and we need to have a concrete road for action and a solution because otherwise people um, get overwhelmed. What do you think? So actually, I have a kind of a personal story in connection to that in a way. Um, <clears throat> so I'm completing service as a VISTA, AmeriCorps VISTA right now. But prior to my service as a VISTA, I think it's three years ago, I went to Annapolis to um, testify at a uh, Senate hearing um, for, a, uh, uh, for a bill. Um, um, I knew nothing about, uh, except for the... Uh, our state senator, I, I knew who she was, but I knew nothing about any of the other senators in that committee and just shared my story and how th- how passing this bill would, would help. And I got a few questions from a few of the uh, panelists, and uh, senators rather, and I didn't feel attacked or anything like that, but um, and then moved on with my day, um, my life actually, I guess. Um, and then a few months later, I'm sitting at the library and the... Um, uh, the professional lobbyist who had been there with us that day sends me an email uh, explaining to me that uh, a particular senator who didn't support the bill was on the full Senate floor explaining to his colleagues why he changed his mind. Um, so he had only been hearing statistics and all that stuff and I guess was able to separate himself and say, no, we don't need it or something. But hearing my personal uh, story changed his mind. He still didn't get the bill passed, but, <laughs> but he changed his mind. <laughs> well, I think Sarah hit the nail on, nail on the head um, when she said about uh, homeless folks are in survival mode, okay? And that's what their day-to-day activity is about, being surviving for that day, getting through that day, and every day is a challenge, okay? So I think what we have to do more is we have to pull up and be our brother's keeper. I do believe in that. And we have to say, hey, look, what, let me hear your story. You know, here's what's out there. Here's some way you can be helped. We pass people every day who are homeless. And I mean, I was sitting on a park bench having a coffee one day, and the guy came by and just sat down beside me. And he started telling me his story. And I'm sitting there listening. He acted like he wasn't talking to me, but he was telling his story. And I was sitting there listening to him. And then finally, when I got up to get ready to leave, he said, will you be here tomorrow? Wow, and I stepped back down, okay, because apparently he had somebody he was thinking he was talking to, okay, and I was paying him no attention because we were sitting there. And, um, you know, I thought, but, but my point is when I started talking to him, I heard his story, and I said, well, there's a place on right down the street from you you can go, and maybe they can give you some services to help you with your diabetes, you know, and that kind of thing. So, you know, these are the kind of things we have to do because we've been blessed enough to be able to sit in this room. And uh, I guarantee you right now, if I asked how many of you own a home, most of you would probably raise your hand. But if I say how many of you are facing foreclosures, your hand will come down, okay? Even if you are in that situation, when you know that Maryland is having that problem, so today or tomorrow or next week or next month, any one of us could be finding ourselves in a homeless situation, okay? And what do you do when you do that? You look for somebody who can help you. But if you're going to turn your nose up or if you're going to look the other way and pretend you don't see a person that's homeless, you're not doing yourself or them any good. 
So, I mean, a couple of things here I want to kind of expand on this. One, one is, I mean, I'll take a different tack when we come back to what we need to do is to figure out how to use, how people can empower themselves by using their own voices to change the way society deals with the issues we're facing. But what do you think that power in the voice of people living in poverty does for them? You know, yeah. because we're, we're like, we play the policy game a lot, a lot of people, not all of you, a lot of people do. So it's an important game to play. But how do the voices change the nature of their own struggle and the nature of the communities they're in and, and beyond the question of policy? I think if, it, if I'm hearing you right, if it gives them a, it gives them a chance to have control of their lives, it gives them an opportunity to feel a little pride and a little dignity if they got someone to listen to them and they can make their voices heard. So that, I mean, it empowers you when you're able to speak up for yourself. Okay, once you learn, like I said earlier, if you, 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 you do one thing and you do good at it and you say, wow, I can do this, so I can, it gives, encourage me to do the next thing, even bigger things. So I think the voices of the, if we allow opportunity for the voices of the people who are homeless or in poverty to speak, then we will know the real story, real life story. Um, a lot of times, as, as my man Dana, Dana, Damien said that he looked at homelessness a different way. And, and most people do. You look at it and say, oh, well, they're out here. And you don't pay him any attention. But when he said once he was able to tell his story, then other people were able to look at him a little differently. It's, it's a very human thing to connect, to be able to share part of yourself with somebody else um, and, to, and to make a difference with that, to know that it's impactful. Um, and so I think that's a, it's a huge thing. I think in our, in our society, we marginalize voices a lot, and it's the voices of the powerful that are heard time and time and time again. Um, and so being able to tell your story and tell it in a way that impacts somebody else's life is so powerful. Um, and that's one of, one of the things that Results has been doing, actually, has been um, providing scholarships and trainings um, to folks who who want to gain more, uh, who are living in poverty, who want to be trained in telling their stories and connecting with people, and it's such a powerful um, thing because a lot of times it is, you know, the brothers keepers, right? The folks that, um, which is great, right? But I'm I'm from a middle class background, <laughs> um, and so it's one thing for people to hear me talk about the issues um, than to hear somebody's story firsthand from somebody else. For those who know me, um, they know I like to talk. And it's especially, I have a lot of fun if the topic is me. So it does stroke my <laughs> ego. It, it does stroke my ego. But a couple of my um, colleagues in the Speaker's Bureau, I have seen them grow as, as, as they share, um, you know, being nervous. And I think they do feel really uh, powerful, uh, power, empowered, rather, by sharing. So I'm curious, how many people in this room, their work would be changed if the people that they're working with and for had their voices at the forefront? Would it affect the work you do? So if it does affect our work, then how do we get there? I mean, how do we get those voices there? How do their voices become heard? There's media. There's places of worship, there are street corners, there are lots of places. So how do we get those voices heard is the question. And But I, we'll get to that. But you want to say something. One back there, second table. 
Thank you. Again, Christine Bergmark from Southern Mound. I just wanted to give you an example of a, a nonprofit in Southern Mound that's doing amazing work with uh, life-sharing stories. It's Farming for Hunger. We work with uh, Bernie Fowler, Jr. Um, he's a, anyway, well, he, he has a, himself quite an amazing story about how he got to where he is. But in any case, he uh, has been growing food on a local farm for the hunger community, and he uh, began engaging uh, pre-release prisoners, or people that were just about to come out into society. And as he began to work with them, um, he realized that each and every one of them had amazing stories about their lives. And so he's created this opportunity, um, and somewhat serendipitously at first, but now it's become very much part of what he does. An example, he um, had the Maryland football team down to the farm, and he has you know, himself, and he talks about his story and how he got to where he is, and he has the, the pre-release inmates behind him. And he says, each one of you, you know, it's all about the choices that you make and hear the stories of these people. And sometimes we demonize people that are in the criminal system or in the form reform system, and they each have a story, as each of us does. And so it gives them heart. It gives it a heart, and it gives them statistics, but it's also a message to say, here's some choices. You don't have to make those choices. Um, so I, it's just a, a marvelous opportunity. It's called Farming for Hunger. So how do we how do go ahead. Hi, so I, I just wanted to share briefly. I'm originally from uh, Detroit, Michigan, and I was very active in politics all of my all of my 20s. And one of the key stories that I heard about Detroit's city council is elected citywide, and there is a street called Cass that um, is was known at the time, and I guess still is, for you know um, where a lot of people experiencing homelessness would gather. There are a lot of uh, motels and, and, and things like that. And so someone had the idea, and I don't know if it generated from within the community or without, but to, to go in and to ensure that everyone who was there experiencing homelessness was registered to vote. And over time, it became one of the strongest voting blocks in the city. And so anyone who was running for um, city council knew they had to come through the cast corridor if they really wanted to get elected. So that, to me, is just a, it's an amazing story. And honestly, I don't know if that's still going on to this day. But nevertheless, um, it's still an amazing story of how people um, became empowered and, and used the vote and used their voice to, to get change. Well, we're picking up on that theme. And we already talked about that. But that if we think of the voice in that larger sense, but not just hearing the voice in a room, but people's voice being heard in a very political and social sense, I mean, can you imagine what would happen, and how would you get there? Imagine what would happen if, and we're talking about homelessness, but I, I expand that out to thinking about just poverty, because anybody in poverty can be homeless at any minute. Anybody in poverty can be hungry or not hungry in a given week, month, or year. So people go through their struggles daily. But what would, what, what would happen, let's take the city that we're living in, since I know that well, if people actually organized that voice to do that, to be a political voice that spoke for itself, to be a voice that voted, to be a voice that helped determine policy by its vote and its voice in the street, but in a much more organized, collective way, you know, I'm, how do you think that would change the nature of where we are? I think a town hall meeting with uh, people who are homeless and in poverty would really change the outlook. Um, uh, I'm sure you all have heard about the Black Lives Matter, and uh, it was on the uh, national debate um, just by keep pushing things out there, and eventually it catches on. I think um, 
the more we talk about these things, the more we don't hide it behind the closed doors and bring it out in the forefront, I think it will have a powerful impact and it will empower the people who are homeless to let people, and, and, you know, the strength in numbers. So if we bring those numbers together and they hear each other's stories, I think they would be more willing to tell their stories. So let me, let me, let me expand that. Let me push a little bit on this. I mean, so I, I, I wasn't talking about town meetings. I'm talking about voices that lead to political power, that change the nature of the way cities, communities make policy, what they do, how we spend our money, where we spend our money. We don't ever hear the, we all these, you know, we, we, we all are part, I have been for years before I went on the radio, we're part of organizations that work with and for communities. But I'm interested in what those voices will do to empower themselves, for them to be the voice of their own future and partially for, and for our future as well. You know what I'm saying? I mean, think about the work you do with those, with the Latina and different immigrant communities, other communities. If, if every homeless or poor person in Baltimore was registered and actually came out and pushed out to vote, pulled themselves out to vote, pulled each other out to vote to have their voices heard. How would that change the nature of our, the discourse? I mean, more than discourse. I hear your question, and I think it's incredibly complex, right? Yes, and it is. So you have, you know, there's so many elements that you have going on. One, I think all of us um, in, in our organizations probably do struggle um, with, with getting there because you have so many barriers when you're, um, when you're in survival mode, right? So one of the activists um, in our group I talk with a lot is in survival mode. Um, and so we had this wonderful um, discussion of, of what it took for her to feel ready to, to join into action, to be able to share her story in a way and come together um, into collective action. Because that takes a lot of effort. <laughs> it takes a lot of sustained effort and in a society where people's voices are consistently marginalized um, and people are shut out, it takes a lot of work to get there. And so I hear your question, um, and I think there's a lot of moving parts. One, you have a lot of psychological disempowerment that's happening um, from people's voices being marginalized. Two, you have a lot of barriers. I mean, even a conference you know, that costs $20 is is incredibly expensive um, if you're thinking about that. So we have lots of barriers that come into place. We know where people are doing um, meetings is not at a place where it's going to attract people. And if I'm concerned about getting my basic needs met right at this moment, I don't know if I'm going to be as ready to engage in you in a dialogue about where we're going. And so I, there are systematic barriers that we need to address. There are psychological barriers that we need to address um, at a lot of levels to make that happen. So I think it would fundamentally change the way we do work in this in our community and around the country. I think a lot of people are working at that, and there's a lot of barriers we have to tackle. Damien, go ahead, and we're going to start jumping in the audience. Uh, well, I mean, so, I mean, on the testimony is that in a way, because um, uh, although I started... Um, you know, speaking out prior to becoming housed, it has been far easier <laughs> now that I'm housed. And I think about the my colleagues, um, and I only have a couple colleagues who are heavily involved who are still experiencing homelessness because they 
it is a huge, huge barrier. I just wanted to. Hi, I'm Bonnie Lane. I work with Damien on the basis of Homelessness Speakers Bureau. I am formerly homeless, was recently a candidate for mayor, and may be jumping back in. I would love to work with people on getting the homeless registered to vote because if you don't know you have the right to do something and you don't know anything about it, if you don't know, you don't know, and if you have the, don't have the opportunity, then where do you get it? So I think we do need to inform and educate people. Um, I understand what survival mode is. I've been there. If we can point these people to resources where they can get their IDs and their birth certificates and the other things they need. There are so many organizations in Baltimore. You can get almost everything you need, except usually a house, and that's a whole other long story. But you know, offer the people and give them the resources. We need a resource guide in one place, not just 211 where you call up. No offense to United Way people and have to call somewhere else. Not standing in line at shelters that are too full. Also, the Section 8 housing list is cut off here in Baltimore until 2020. So we have a housing crisis on our hands that nobody's aware of. And then there's this whole food stamp thing where they've rechanged how they're going to do it and when they're going to do it for the fourth time in a row. Nobody told the people getting the food stamps. Maybe five people I know got a letter in the mail. And the media, we have to change the narrative. We have a single story in the media that says, mainly, if you're homeless, you're a drug addict, you know, or you've um, robbed somebody, or there's a lot of criminalization issues, and we need to break those down and move forward and do it. Thank you. Let's take a look. Thank you so much, Bonnie. I think that part of the process of getting the voices out there is to understand the criminalization of poverty and to change that by empowering that voice. Let's go over here. Woman in the front and then the gentleman behind her. Hello. I'm Shani Stamir again from uh, Family League of Baltimore. And I just had a question, if, um, and I'm just sort of shifting the focus a little bit. Um, so we're focusing on people who actually can vote those who are of voting age, but what about children who are facing um, facing homelessness, that they want their voices heard, and um, sort of just tying it into um, what like Baltimore Block is doing um, when they um, um, protested in um, Baltimore City Hall, um, only to not really have their voices heard anyway, and have people demonize them and say, oh, these rowdy kids. Um, but honestly, like there's school-age kids trying to get their voices heard. So, how do we plug into that and amplify their voices and empower them when they don't, because they don't have the right rule, they don't have the um, eligibility to vote? People aren't looking at. You're listening to "You Aren't Dangerous Until You Speak Powerfully," a conversation I moderated at the Maryland Food Access and Nutrition Network conference held earlier this week. There's more of this conversation coming up after the break, so please stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Soundbites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show. Produced out of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And also broadcast on Delmarva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM. Today on Soundbites, we listen to a discussion that took place earlier this week. You aren't dangerous until you speak powerfully. At the Maryland Food Access and Nutrition Network that took place earlier this week at the University of Maryland. We've been discussing the ways that voice can be leveraged for political power and community and personal empowerment. Here's the rest of the conversation. I mean, as a, as a person who's involved in media, and we produce this whole series called Just Words, which is the voices of the working poor for a middle-class America to hear, 
and it was I've had a very powerful project and a good project that we put together. But beyond that, I guess what we're pushing here, what you were just saying, and what you were just saying about the Baltimore block, is also not just a question of a social question. And I know a lot of nonprofits can't get involved in politics. It's not a social, just a social question, but it becomes a political question. It becomes a question of how the voices of the poor are heard in a deeply profound way that forces change, like Baltimore Block, which was raised, a group of young people in Baltimore who come together around Frederick Gray's death uh, and have changed the nature of the discourse. And sometimes discourse isn't always polite. And sometimes it doesn't need to be polite to make your voices heard. I'm just going to throw that out there as just a little piece from what we just said. But you just want to say something, Damien, and we'll go right yeah, to the middle. So um, I, I shared earlier that I changed one particular senator's mind, and the, but the bill failed, um, and it failed a year again. And we, so I couldn't go um, in the years, uh, the subsequent years, to uh, uh, speak for the bill, but um, uh, colleagues did, and we just kept at it. Still hasn't passed, but <laughs> we have we have kept at it. But uh, what to do, I guess. So the middle, these two ladies in the middle, uh, middle sample, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, this is Kathy Shulman from uh, St. Vincent de Paul. The thing that I've been thinking about as we've been having this conversation is also to reframe this geographically. I feel like we constantly are focused on Baltimore City, um, and a number of us, actually, a number of us at this table are doing a lot in Baltimore County. Um, just to throw one set of statistics out there, um, in Baltimore City, 70,000 children are eligible for free and reduced meals. In Baltimore County, it's 52,000. Uh -huh. And I think I really didn't understand this because I've been so Baltimore-focused my whole career, but I think we have to really start talking about the suburbanization of poverty, and I think we need to have more people who are going through economic uh, struggles talking from the suburbs. So surprising lawmakers, surprising each other with who's speaking. And I think the thing that I've been thinking a lot about with looking at Baltimore County is how um, isolated people who are poor are. Um, there's some areas um, like Dundalk or Randallstown or Woodlawn that are more densely populated, but if you're living in an area where there aren't too many other poor people, you're feeling even more isolated. So I just think we have to pull it out of the assumption of this is a Baltimore City problem and look at it as a metro region area and mix up who is speaking because we need more, in Baltimore County I would argue people, a lot of the decision makers don't want to talk about poverty. In Baltimore City I think they're more comfortable because it's been on the table for so long. Baltimore County, there's been this meteoric rise in poverty. Um, so that's what I wanted to interject. Well, that's good, because how many people in this room are not from, are not, don't represent Baltimore organizations? Lots. And, you know, I think that's, I think we do make the mistake of, of thinking of this as a Baltimore-centric conversation. It's all across the state, suburban, rural, and urban. You know, and I think that, that's it. And I think they are scared to talk about it in the Baltimore County Council and delegates, but I think our city delegates are equally as frightened to talk about it sometimes because of what it might mean. But anybody want to weigh in on that over here before we go to the other woman at the middle table? 
um, sort of both of yours um, coming together. I think when people, in response to your question earlier, people have to be educated about what that looks like and the fact that politicians say a lot of things and don't follow through. And we have to realize that it's a marathon um, and people have to be prepared to know that it's a marathon. Um, and in speaking about Baltimore County and, and folks not <laughs> paying attention to poverty and, and shifting it under the rug absolutely happens. So I'll give you a great example, one of our members of Congress that we've been working with for quite some time. The office is always lovely. They love to meet with us. Legislative director is fantastic, great guy, and every time I meet with them, he says, you know, that that the representative's not going to co-sponsor, not going to support it, even though ideologically he supports it. And so um, we went out on a bit of a limb, called him out in the paper, um, and what do you know, the next day they <laughs> called me, um, called me up um, about that bill and is now a co-sponsor of the two bills we asked him to be on. So I think part of that is is continuing to put pressure and, and preparing people for that aren't in the political world um, of what that looks like and the fact that you do have to to keep pushing, you know. Right here, Someone? I just want to say uh, again, coalition building is really great. Include include um, those people who are homeless or living in poverty as part of your coalition. I think that make a big difference when you go to the legislators and you do have to put pressure on them. Let them know you're not going to get my vote if you don't look into taking care of our homeless or putting money in the budget to take care of homeless or put money in the budget to take care of our children. You know, these are the things we need to do. That's our right to do that, and we don't exercise the right strong enough. And I'm just going to mention uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They created that bill to make sure that people who are driving drunk have to face some consequences, okay? We can do the same thing when it comes to hunger. If we want solutions, then we have to start using our minds and be creative and draft some bills that when we get to that legislative uh, uh, session, that we'll stand in front and center letting them know that we mean business and we want to see a change. I would just want to say a small step. Uh, this summer, um, we, I did a camp with my partner called Camp Community, and we engaged uh, at St. Francis Academy, we engaged the football team and some other stu uh, young people in Baltimore, it's pretty much East Baltimore. And when the children first came into the camp, they did not talk to each other. They were angry and uh, had a lot of issues. And so we planned the curriculum using uh, technology, public health and nutrition. We had gardening, we had um, uh, nutrition, uh, public health issues, uh, technology, and we even had an art uh, program. But we found out that when we talked to them each morning, we did a little focus group each morning with topics, and we began to learn things about their lives. Uh, we, we had did subjects like, if a spaceship come, what would you take with you? And little things like that. And then we started the conversation several days, and then we told them, think about what you want to start the conversation with the next, uh, the next time you come. And so I began to see children's lives change. One little girl in particular, when she came into the program, 14 years old, I would thought she was 35 years old, the way she looked. But when she left the program, six weeks later, she looked like a 14-year-old. I began to see football players cook, 
I began to see them play together. We took them to the library. They played. They did things that young people do. And I, one day, we went to the uh, library, and I just shared a little tears. I'm a crybaby. I said, all these children want to do is to be children. And so, and they want to share their stories. As you said, storytelling. They wanted to share their stories. I began to find out at five years old, the police had broken into their homes. They were pushed up against the wall, not because of what they did, but because of what some people in their family did. And I began to see change. They told me stories of people in their neighborhoods fighting. They're fighting all the time at school. So at the end of the program, they were all friends. Football, great big football players with little tiny kind of little boys were, uh, were, were friends together. Girls and boys friends together. So I was saying that if this, could, as you said, happens in our community, what a change there will be. That was, like I said, it was a small step. I'm not saying it will happen to everyone, and that's what we want to do. We're going to have a follow-up with them in November, working with some Morgan students, and so that we can even spread this to other uh, communities, and as the lady said here, Baltimore County, because pretty much teenagers have the same problems no matter what gender they are, what color they are, and what communities they come from. They just need to talk, and that's what we found out. Just let them talk. Let them have a voice. And again, like I said, it was a small step. It was rewarding to me as, as well as to the students. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, in, in the few minutes we have left, um, I'd like to kind of think about what we talked about here in this last hour and what maybe we walk away with in terms of how voices are used and how we use voices and how those voices are heard. Uh, and where we take them uh, in our work. Summing up what, where, where we've come to. I want to start with voter rights. I think we need to educate the community and the homeless. And I do have some information here that show you how you can write sample letters um, in regards to voting rights and, and advocating for the homeless. You change the subject matter, use the same letter. You know, um, and, and join the coalitions if you can join. You don't have to do it by yourself. You know, the NAACP is open, uh, MCAN is open, the Hunger for Solutions is open. You know, join those coalitions like you all are here today because you're interested and you have a feel or a passion for this. And I'm saying to you, hey, look, we can do it together. Together we can make a difference, okay? And we're going to look out for those young folks because there's no reason in this world that there should be a homeless young folks anywhere in the United States, not one. We need to make a difference, so thank you very much. Um, so I like the uh, idea of the coalition. So we're all fighting poverty, basically, of course. Um, uh, some of us are, are fighting hunger, hunger that is a symptom of poverty. Homelessness is a symptom of poverty, health issues as well. So um, remember that um, to... Um, just because maybe your your lane is homelessness or your lane is hunger, you might find support in other in other le levels and stuff. Gosh, I think we've come to a lot. Um, I think some of the biggest themes that I heard coming up are that we have to get people to the table. Um, but in getting people to the table, there's a lot of steps that need to be taken. Lots of tangible barriers, intangible barriers that are there. Um, I think education is a huge one to get around some of those intangible barriers um, and connecting folks 
with resources. So using people's voices um, has to start with making room for the voices to be heard um, to get there. Thank you, Sarah. And I, I want to thank our panelists here, Sarah Buckingham, Damon Housling, Gerald Stansberry. Thank you so much for taking your time. And thank you all very much. I want to thank Gerald Stansbury, Maryland State Chapter President of the NAACP, Sarah Buckingham of the Baltimore City Chapter of Results, a national nonprofit grassroots advocacy organization, Damian Housling of the Baltimore Area Faces of Homelessness Speakers Bureau. For more information about Maryland Food Access and Nutrition Network, visit mdhungersolutions.org. Well, we're about to talk to Tom Philpot, who, of course, is a Mother Jones food and agricultural reporter co-founder of Maverick Farms in North Carolina, joins us once again from Austin, Texas. And uh, Tom, it's been a long time. Welcome back to Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner Show. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Let me ask you about the piece that you wrote um, on Purdue uh, on September the 9th. Yeah. Uh, the, the Nyman Ranch pork now brought to you by Purdue. And we saw in the papers that Purdue bought um, this organic pork company, as it's called. So talk about what happened, what this is, this is about. This is to me, interesting on a number of levels. So let me let you start out. Yeah, I mean, to me, the broad context is that we've got this, our meat market here in the United States, our sort of meat production market, is dominated by really six or seven companies. Um, Tyson, uh, Smithfield, uh, this company called JBS, and Purdue, right there in your backyard, is a you know major player in chicken. It's the fourth biggest uh, and these companies really dominate, you know, if you look at the, the pork, beef, chicken markets, four companies dominate 50, 60, in the case of beef, 80% of the market. So these are really kind of dominant companies. And their profit margins, you know, most of them, and produce an exception here, but most of them are publicly traded. So there's pressure on them to be growing profits, revenues, quarter after quarter. And the problem is that the American public our, our demand for meat has stagnated and actually it has declined a little bit. Um, you know, basically peaked in 2004. It has just been drifting downward as people eat less meat. They might maybe do, they do a meatless Mondays kind of a thing. It's not vegetarianism that's driving it. It's just people eating less meat. And so if you're one of those companies and you have all this investment infrastructure, slaughterhouses, distribution networks, you're having, that you're having to maintain, you really are in a crisis. How are we going to grow if people are eating less meat? And so they're doing all the all sorts of things to maintain growth. And you know, one of them is um, combining up with each other. There was just a massive merger a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, where a major pork company called a major meat company called um, um, JBS mm-hmm. bought the pork operations of Cargill meaning that three companies now slaughter something like 75% of the hogs going to the United States. That, that was one response. Let's just keep getting bigger and try to get economies of scale. Um, you know, the, the other major response is this sort of desperate lunge for, uh, for export markets. How can we export to China? How can we export more to Africa, Europe? And so there's this big you know, push to export more meat. Uh, that you see playing out in the uh, Trans-Pacific Trade Partner, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I'm sure you've covered, uh, and a whole lot of that trade deal is about opening meat markets in, in Asia. And then the third strategy, and this is what Purdue did, is to look at, if you look at the broad market, the broad market for meat, it's 
stagnating, but certain areas of it are growing fast. And that's sort of the alternative meat market, your organic meats, your pest, your sort of, uh, you know, antibiotic-free meats, um, pastured meat, uh, grass-fed, things like that. Those are the one part where people are consuming more of, and you're right. seeing substantial growth. And so what Purdue did is part of what I think is going to be a big trend uh, here on out is buying these small niche companies like Nyman Ranch, companies that have a reputation for high quality, have a reputation for treating farmers well, uh, have a reputation for treating animals well. Uh, Companies like Purdue are going to be going in and buying them up and trying to get a little bit of that shine and also the actual growth in the market. And that's what you saw here. And um, just a couple of months ago, a company with a um, much worse reputation than Purdue, and that is Hormel, uh, snapped up Applegate. And Applegate, uh, which is another small meat producer, um, is even more sort of purist than Nyman. It's, uh, most of its, most of its uh, meat is organic and pasture-raised. And so you are seeing these gigantic meat companies like Hormel and Purdue buying these smaller players. So what do you think that says about Purdue? Both in it for, it's both pragmatic and maybe way of looking at the market and which you may think it may be transforming into. Okay, well, given they also bought that other company that you talk about that we yes. covered with, that, with that, that raises um, uh, not organic chickens, but Coleman Natural. That, Coleman that, Natural, right? and that was, that was 2011, so that was right. uh, almost five years ago. Right. This, uh, so it's an early adapter to this. And I think there's a couple things about Purdue that are interesting. One is that it's a, a family-owned company. The, the Purdue family still owns it. And so it is not beholden to these sort of global shareholders that demand growth at all costs. So it's able to have a little bit more of a long-term view. And I've got to say that among the major meat players, especially in the chicken market, but I think this is probably true in all the meat species, that Purdue has adapted, you know, very early adapted to the whole critique of the meat industry's use of antibiotics. So the meat industry, as we've talked about before, um, has been reliant on these small doses of antibiotics daily to make animals grow faster, to keep them healthy in cramped conditions, and it's causing this crisis in antibiotic resistance. And about a decade ago, Purdue was able to sort of look at where the market was going, listen to what consumers were telling them, and start experimenting with pulling back from antibiotics, especially ones that are used in human medicine. And, um, at this, and I think that this is something that it hasn't done a very good job of getting out to the public, but you know, by, 19, by 2014, the company was saying that 95% of its birds are grown without antibiotics deemed uh, necessary for human medicine. Um, and half of its birds are now grown without antibiotics at all. And that's something that no other major meat company can say. So I do think that it is establishing itself as a bit of a different uh, beast than these other meat companies. That said, it's really important to note that, like the other poultry companies, or sort of Tyson's and JBS's, it, um, it, its production is all based on contract farmers. I mean, you know, these kind of relationships with farmers that are based on these contracts where the company owns the birds and controls the production process. 
and essentially it shifts all of the risk of production onto the farmers farmers themselves. And uh, Purdue is still in that system, and there are still controversies around its contracting. And just in just this year, a contractor, a Purdue contract contractor down in South Carolina came forward and talked about abuse. You know, basically the conditions that he was being forced to work under were abusing his chickens and causing uh, health problems for his chickens and he wasn't making any money. And, you know, there's a whole story there about contract poultry farmers getting burdened with all this debt. Yep. Company says, oh, you have to upgrade the, your, your poultry house in this way or that way. The farmer has to take on debt to make these improvements. The company benefits from the improvements, but the farmer now has this bigger debt burden. And you get these debt spirals. And so Purdue still is playing, is playing that game. It's important to, to note. But it is, it, you know, I have become convinced over the years that it's move away from antibiotics is serious. And I think it is going to end up leading, it's going to end up forcing the entire meat industry to follow suit. Well, this is, as usual, Tom Philpott, it's always eye-opening to talk to you, and you raise issues that make us rethink what we're thinking, and I'm glad you just don't sit around and, and uh, accept the paradigms of environmentalist or of, of course, ag, which you don't, <laughs> All right. and bring us some real, real um, original thinking. I appreciate it very much. All right. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you. Tom Philpott, Mother Jones Food and Agriculture Reporter, with us once again here on The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Siana Greaves, Manifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And to podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Del Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.